Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and the third episode of our four-part specialist series, Expeditia. If you're playing this episode without having listened to episodes one and two of the series, then I really recommend you go back and listen to those first. In this episode, part three, we pick up where we left off and cover the second half of Charlie's expedition. If I were listening to this right now as an audience member, given how this story is playing out in Ep 2, I wouldn't want to hear too much waffling from me. I'd want to dive straight back into the story. So let's do that straight away. Over to Charlie Walker. So you're out of the police station. You're back onto your expedition journey, whatever you want to call it. My walkabout. Your walkabout. How were you feeling once you were released from that police station? Well, I hadn't been held, I hadn't been formally arrested, and after signing the paperwork, I was free to go. So I sort of felt, I've got to be a little bit careful from now on, but I can carry on. So I just got released from the police station with one Winchester offence. I don't feel particularly comfortable holding this little recorder up to my mouth right now. So I'm going to get back to the flat where I'm staying and explain what happened. Oh boy, I think my journey slightly hangs in the balance. And, and this is the point at which I, I started to think, well, it's important to me that I, I want to finish the journey from a personal perspective, but I suppose also, you know, this is a journey that I, you know, was planning and am planning and will write a book about. And um, it's always good to reach the finish point because <laughs> if your book stops a third of the way through or whatever, it's it's quite hard to eke out this extra chapters. You've got to go really cerebral. Um, so I wanted to get to my finish line, but I suppose from this point onwards, I was willing to accept the idea that I might get deported. I just wanted to get to the end first. But I was also aware that between or at least I believed that between Ustaquiga and Tixi, there were no police. You know, this is a really remote area. Between Ustaquiga and Tixi, there was a ghost town and two villages and nothing else. Both those villages had about three, three or four hundred people. So, you know, provided I did nothing drastically wrong or nothing, or, or had no drastically bad luck, 
I'd be able to get to Tixie. And if I got to Tixie and they said, all right, you have to leave the country, Soviet, not the end of the world. Yeah, and that, that covers the human and political risk. But outside of any of that, and if there wasn't a special operation happening, this is still, it's a treacherous, hostile, dangerous, use whichever adjectives and superlatives you want. It, it always feels more that way externally, I think. I'm, I suppose, often to my detriment, I'm, in, I'm often inclined to believe that things aren't as bad as they are, which, you know, I'm not exactly a little Miss Sunshine. I'm not, I mean, I'm a great skeptic and um, I don't want to be, but I'm often quite cynical as well. But like with, you know, my own personal situation on any journey, you know, I, I, I often find it hard to believe that I'm about to die or I'm about to be arrested or, you know, I'm about to be shot or whatever it is. Because I mean, it's a lot easier if you don't believe that, isn't it? <laughs> you know, self-deceit is one of the greatest tools. But, it, you know, if used badly, it, it, it can be a problem. Um, so, I, sorry, what was your question? <laughs> well, it wasn't really a question. It was a statement. But I cut you off, didn't I? <laughs> no, 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 it's good. This is a harsh environment. Right. How harsh was it? Was it dangerous, really? Oh, you just mean the climate, the, the, the weather, the conditions? Yeah. I felt equal to it. And, you know, I, I started from Batagai on, I think, the 2nd of March or something. And, you know, by now it's getting into late March. And late March is, you know, winter is like eight months long here. But late March is getting towards the back end of that. You know, it's not spring yet, but it's getting into the less bad winter. And after East Quiga, there, after that point, there were probably only a handful of occasions that got below minus 40. Um, so it was more often in the minus 30s and occasionally in the daytime, you know, it would get up to, you know, the teens even, which feels quite balmy. Yeah, I mean, it does, but I, I mean, I'm bad in hot weather. And since I've come back to England, I've, I've you know, I've found everything hot and sweaty. Um, I, I'm fine in the cold. I'm quite a sort of furry creature. And so minus 17 is, is you know, is easy. So I, I, was, I was decreasingly worried about, you know, pitting myself against the elements. I increasingly thought, well, I've got this on that front. No, I think it's actually important to say from a, from a third-party perspective that you're right, I agree. You know, that Scottish insipid cold is much that wet, bone-chilling cold yeah. is much harder to deal with than a minus 17 dry because you can put a big coat on. I, I mean, I'd also say that of the journeys I've done from a sort of travel expedition physical perspective, this is kind of the easiest. Um, and that's not to play up the other ones, it's more to play down this one. Yeah, it was really cold, particularly for the first few weeks, but this is the first time that I've been actually properly equipped. <laughs> you know, I've been in, I've camped in minus 40 before with a sleeping bag that is good down to minus 12 and extreme down to minus 30. Extreme means you'll live, but you won't be happy. But yeah, extreme was minus 30 and it was minus 40. You know, I, I've, I've been very ill-prepared before, my fault. Um, and this is the first time I had all the right gear. You know, I had excellent gloves from an excellent glove company, the Heat Company. Um, I had an excellent sleeping bag from Tundra Sleeping Bags. I had an excellent jacket from Fjallraven. I had everything I needed. And on that front, everything was working absolutely fine. So the, you know, I'm walking 30-odd kilometers a day, um, on 
sort of thin snow or even smooth ice at times pulling a sled, even though the sled might weigh 65 kilograms or something, I'm about 75 to 80 normally, closer to 80 now. Um, it's not that hard. You know, it's, it, like, it's not easy, and it, but it's not hard. Yeah, you can do it. You do it for a few days and then after that it becomes easy. So physically everything was fine and not that hard and that gave me lots of space mentally to look and to think and to wonder and whatever else. There's also the distinct possibility that you might just have been doing this long enough to have enough experience to know what you're doing, possibly. Nah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't think I get better at any of these things, but I could probably get a little better at calculated risk as time has gone by maybe not with regard to geopolitics as it turns out but with regard to like climactic danger i'm better at, yeah i mean experience does help yeah i'm better at dealing with that now than i was certainly five ten years ago yeah and we're talking a lot about the you know the the the, the villages the towns the interaction with the people who live there but actually this is a journey of isolation in significant quantity yeah, well, I wanted to mention that. I started before, but I got sidetracked. It's bizarre because I'm going through a very, very empty place and there are villages every, you know, 200, 300 kilometers or so. But the road I'm following, this Zimnik, this, this river, has each day 12 to 20 maybe, I don't know, trucks going past carrying coal down to Batagai. And so I had each day bouts of like silence and peace and isolation, solitude, contemplation, whatever else. But then every now and again, suddenly a convoy of, you know, two, three, four, five trucks would shoot past. But often if they saw me, they'd stop and have a little chat. So I'd have these, these periods of, you know, solitude, not loneliness. I never felt lonely on this journey. And that's one thing I have learned over the years is how to deal with being alone but suddenly just punctuated by a bunch of people who are in their hot cabins, some of them watching TV as they drive, which is a bit disconcerting when you are walking on the on the, the, the road made of ice on which it's quite hard to break. Yeah, they don't have uh, spikes or even chains on their tyres. They're, they're just driving trucks. Um, suddenly these people will pull over and say, hey, how are you doing? And, and you know, occasionally they give me a tangerine or something, which was very exciting. Um, you have to eat it straight away, otherwise that's, that's a hard tangerine to, to chew. Um and, you know, sometimes we'd have a quick chat with them about whatever, this, that and the other. Most of them just wanted to take a selfie and then drive off and then suddenly it's just silent again. So it was, it was an odd sort of staccato solitude. The truck has just pulled over. So here is a conversation that I have probably half a dozen, maybe more times a day. I also this morning woke up, I was, uh, I was cooking my breakfast, so I was melting some snow. I had my stove 
on sort of full pelt. It's quite a noisy stove, the dragonfly it's called. <laughs> Sounds like a, a barista making a lovely cup of delicious fresh hot coffee rather than the instant muck with powdered milk that I'm drinking at the moment. But um, so loud was the stove that I didn't hear uh, a truck had pulled over and someone had approached and I was just there sitting in my tent kind of staring into, into space and suddenly heard this and I looked up and a man was not only by my tent but had thrust his head through the vent that I'd opened to allow all the steam to get out of the tent from the water so there was just this disembodied floating Russian head shoved <laughs> literally inside my tent about about half a meter from my face I just looked up and saw this man well this, this disembodied head um, and it turned out to be Sergei who I met uh, a couple of weeks ago briefly he pulled over we had a little chat uh, then and the same again now uh, he like increasingly anyone else I talk to keeps warning me about the savage uh, dick withering as Natik the Azerbaijani driver put it uh, winds that I can expect once I get up onto the tundra and especially once I get out onto the Laptev Sea uh, Sergei which seems to be so far the name of roughly one in three uh, of the drivers that I meet with these trucks of coal. Um, Sergei then forced onto me a tin of pilchards of some sort, um, a tin of beef and a tin of condensed milk, uh, all of which are obviously totally frozen solid already. It was incredibly generous of him and I tried to explain how the, certainly the milk, I will really struggle to use because I have to thaw the whole thing out just to get at any of it, to shove it in my acrid, tasteless coffee. Um, but he insisted, so I've got three extra tins in my, in my sled this morning. Why not hop in the truck and hitch a lift? Never crossed my mind. I, I, actually, most of them offered. It, that honestly never crossed my mind because I wasn't struggling. You know, I didn't, I, I didn't go there only to meet people. I went there also to have this experience by myself. I, I, love, I like big, open, empty places, preferably cold. Um, so, I, you know, I, I found it very, very easy. Every time someone offered me a ride to say, no, I'm fine, thanks. And one thing I love about Russia or remote parts of Russia, different in big cities, I guess. But when people said, hey, do you want to ride? Um, yeah, they'd say, where are you going? And I'd say, Tixie. And they'd go, and they'd tut. And they'd say, you know, they're not all going to Tixie. They're going to a different place. But they'd say, do you want to ride? For a while, at least. And I'd say, no, I'm fine, thanks. And they'd say, why? Pachimu. And I would say, expedizi, expedition. And they'd go, ah. And then they would sort of, you know, clasp their hands together and shake them as a sort of, you know, solidarity or give me a, you know, fist, uh, you know, sort of power to you. 
and smile and drive off. And there's not many countries in the world where it takes one word, simple word, expedition, for people to understand, appreciate and sort of enjoy what you're doing and leave you to it. Because in other places, you know, sometimes I've had to explain for ages in vain why I'm doing what I'm doing. And understandably, people don't get it because it is madness. But there's something in Russia, in the Russian soul, if you want to get poetical about it, there's a stoicism, there's a, an acceptance of discomfort or suffering that maybe has been there for hundreds of years due to climate, maybe has been there for a hundred years due to politics and you know oppression, who knows, but it's there. And I think it comes out in Russian literature, so it probably has been there for a while, but there is a, an acceptance, an understanding and an embrace of difficulty that I have historically admired. That's fascinating. I normally spend the last part of these sorts of comments thinking about what I'm going to say next, but instead I found that so interesting that I haven't, because, <laughs> <laughs> which is going to throw me, but that is amazing. You know, I've, I've not really travelled in Russia and I know exactly what you're talking about with people's confusion everywhere. Mm -hmm. But that one word is clearly powerful. Yeah. But it's interesting as well because this is, you know, you said at the start on this podcast we've discussed everything everything you possibly can around the definition of adventure and exploration and don't worry I'm not going to do that with you but this does sound like in the truest sense of the term it's adventure with purpose rather than just a journalistic pursuit you flatter me <laughs> well I didn't mean to liar <laughs> <laughs> no I'm being sincere right I'm not good at sincerity but uh, <laughs> but yeah I mean I I hope so um, f for me I think increasingly I feel like the adventures I go on should have a purpose because it's increasingly hard to justify them otherwise. But that's not to say that you can't just go on an adventure. I suppose the more I do them, the more it feels like for me, because I've been on a few, there at least could be and therefore perhaps should be a little more to it. Yeah. And how much for you is it, I mean, I'm seriously veering off piste, how much is it the cultural exchange and earning that via the journey versus the journey and the solitude? I think the two are often inseparable, unless you're going to Antarctica or something where, you know, the penguin social structures are not that accepting, I've heard. Um, so, yeah, I tend to, I like going to places where there are people, but not very many I'm not particularly drawn to the mega cities of the subcontinent or New York. I found baffling and overwhelming and it's not for me. Um, I like places where there are people but not very many of them because I think existence in isolation is interesting and there's different degrees of isolation. So I, I find it hard to separate. I mean, it's, I, I haven't been on many adventures where I've just been somewhere where there are, there are no people. For you know, I've been to places where you don't see anyone for ages but that's a little different. And also it's not the law of diminishing returns, it's the other way around. It's the longer you go without seeing somebody when you then do see somebody who is different or eccentric or new, it's the experience is increased because of that, surely. Definitely, yeah. And also if you turn up somewhere where there aren't many strangers turning up, albeit, you know, domestic or foreign, that creates instantly a sort of veneer at least of interest and curiosity about you and that provides some level of access or intimacy with people you come across 
But on you know, having traveled in remote Russia in the past, that's something I found not always, but maybe not even often, but at times different on this journey. And because I haven't been to Yakutia before, it's impossible for me to know if this is location-specific or if this is situation-specific, given what was happening in the world at the time. But I noticed on this journey a reticence, a distance, taciturnity with regard to me when I met people. Um, on the entire journey, I, and this is not me complaining, I don't care where I sleep, but on, on the entire journey, I was surprised to only be invited into someone's home for the night once. And that was a, a reindeer herder's cabin up on the tundra. Um, I was welcomed into each community and I was, you know, set up and allowed to sleep in the, oh no, sorry, twice, two nights, but in the, the Dom Kultura, the village hall, essentially, um, which always suited me fine. There's lots of space. I can spread out my gear, dry everything out and whatever. But it, I, I did, I do feel like I had less access to and insight into people's lives than I have on equivalent journeys in obviously different but equivalent places in the past and I think that distance was born of the sudden cultural or ideological divide between the country that I come from and to them represent and the country that they are from and live in and maybe do feel or don't feel represented by um and that was that was really sad you know I I I, I really you know noticed that often and it feels like when I arrived, the door was ajar and I was able to peek through and get a bit of an insight into what was going on here. And very quickly, that door slowly crept shut and Russia has shut itself off into a Soviet-era style state of suspicion and fear and silence and bonkers autocracy that it has had in the past for many, many decades and then centuries before it with the, you know, frankly insane Romanovs, many of them at least. Um, and so that was really sad and really interesting, but really sad. Yeah, I can see that. But also, I think that, uh, this is personal opinion, I think that your journey is potentially more special than it would have been because of the unique insight that you have into that specific timestamp. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't necessarily say special. I suppose maybe informative i don't know it like special implies a good oh, special operation not always a good thing is it <laughs> well the reason i i, I, I know I, I know what you mean yeah it, i think it's the the, the the use of special is perhaps lazy but i think it's the it's the fact that it's unrepeatable yeah you could probably have done your journey next year or the year after or the year after that and that you would maybe have got similar results, whereas this particular journey at this particular time... Well, I don't think you could. I don't think you can go to this place now. I certainly can't. I'm banned from the country. Well, yeah. But I think it'll be years and maybe decades before Russia, anywhere beyond perhaps Petersburg and Moscow, will be open and visit visitable again. And mm. whether or not you should go is a different conversation, and that's a different debate for a different time. But you're not going to be safe to go, necessarily. And there was an element, you know, there was there was an overwhelming sense of safety before, and that, that's gone. Yeah. God, it's interesting. I should probably qualify that. I've never been overwhelmed by safety in Russia, <laughs> but I have felt safe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, and there's so many places I could take this and would love to. I mean, I'm having to bend some as we go because we don't have time. But yeah. Talk to me about the reindeer. Okay. Um... Well, a few days after Ustkuiga, I left the Yana River 
I went up in some hills. Uh, I left the river at this town called Severny, which just means north. And this was an entirely abandoned town. It used to be a gold mine um, and just lots of empty, rusting, rotting, tilting um, steelwork. Um, once I got up into the hills, I was very much on the tundra from pretty much that point onwards. And I came down out of the hills, a few trees around, but basically tundra by that point, followed the Omoloi River, reached the village of Khair, which it's hard to say. <laughs> K-H-Y-Y-R, I think. Not a vowel, or maybe it's... No, no, there's not a vowel in it, I think. No, no, K-H-A-Y-Y-R. Khair. Um, and uh, this is one of... This is the second final village I passed through. And the majority of, not the majority, but some of the men in this village are still practicing reindeer herders. But the herds are themselves sort of nomadic in a cyclical migratory pattern. And so those men aren't really in the village. They they might come back for a week to spend with their wife or families occasionally, but they, they do live very separated lives, the, the um, husbands and wives. Formerly, the, the the women would have gone with the men and followed the the herd around throughout the year, but the, the Soviets forced them to be in villages, and that structure remains. Um, in in Khair, I tried to arrange a visit to go and spend some time with the reindeer herders, and that was going to involve being because no one knows exactly where they are at any given moment. You know, these guys go out, they have radios, but they're, they're not constantly radioing positions; they're just out with the herds. Um, so it would involve someone taking me to them. And in this village, a little like we discussed just now, there was a, a remove, a distance between me and people. No one wanted to be particularly associated with me. And no, no, one, would, no one was interested. No one wanted to, to you know, take me. So I, I, you know, I chatted to people who are related to herders or have practiced herding but aren't currently reindeer herders. Um, so I spent a couple of nights there, then carried on, got to the end of the Omoloi River, got onto the sea ice, and halfway from the Omoloi River mouth to Tixi, there was one final village, Naiba. And Naiba was the first village I'd been to that felt intact, you know, thriving in some sense, as opposed to dying. Lots of the other villages are emptying out, and the people, the young people certainly, all want to go to the city. And that's not to say that wasn't the same case in Naiba. But Naiba had a decent, well-supplied school. It had a um, a hospital staffed by about seven people where, where they put me up for several nights. Um, I mean, they didn't need all those people. And, and the, the cost of maintaining this community sort of essentially at a loss. These communities are run at a loss, which in other parts of the world, in Britain, you know, if a community isn't making money, that's not necessarily the end of the world because a community is, you know, there's, there's a purpose in that within itself. Whereas in Russia, these things are viewed slightly differently. So it's, it's sort of amazing that it's still, you know, subsisting. It helps that it's in winter when the sea is frozen, it's a 100-mile drive from Tixie, so it's, it's kind of connected to this port that has cargo coming in and out, so it's a bit easier to you know, maintain. But in, in Naiba, it took a, a while, but eventually I was able to arrange to be uh, taken up by, by one of the workers from the administration, the administrative building uh, in Okenti. Um, he took me up into the, tun- into the hills in the tundra. The village just sits on the coast um, on a snowmobile, 
the high, you know, just the coldest journey, being on the snowmobile was brutally cold because you're not moving. Whenever I was hiking, you know, you're generating heat and energy. On the snowmobile, I just froze. But eventually we reached um, this little cabin up in the hills where one man, Vasya, that is his actual name, I've got no reason to hide his identity, lovely old man, he's a herder, he lived there. Um, on arrival, we went briefly with him on another freezing... So we're probably about 40 kilometres, maybe maybe 30 miles, in fact, from the village. So it's quite a way up, distance away on a snowmobile. That they're not super fast, they're, and some of these things are quite antiquated, sort of, you know, 80s, you know, skidoos. Um, we went briefly to visit the herd, which was another 20k on or so. Um, spent a bit of time with them. He ripped open a couple of sacks of feed, which supplements the the forage, the um, grazing they get by sort of cuffing through, hoofing through the snow. Um, and there were about... I'm going to misremember this. <laughs> I think there was about 500 reindeer there. And in the in the area, there was about another 2,000 in like a couple of different herds. But these these numbers are nothing compared to what they used to be. Like the herd numbers have just gone down and down and down in eastern Siberia. The, the Nenets in the west are thriving slightly more. Um, we saw the herd. That, that There wasn't a great deal to it. There's a bunch of reindeer there. They're hanging out. They've all got their, you know, velvety, furry horns at different levels of growth. They're all soon, spring's coming, they're going to rut and knock their horns off. Then there'll be some calves born. But Vasya's job seems to be largely for the winter. He lives in between, I think, two or three different cabins as the herd moves. He goes to the closest one to them and he goes out every couple of days to visit them and then he goes back to the cabin and just spends his time hanging out there. He says the summer's exhausting because they've got the calving season, they've got to do they've got to do a lot more. Whereas in winter it's just checking they're there, checking they're all right. Um you know, supplementing their feed a little bit and then back to the cabin. He says he prefers winter, even though it gets down minus 60, whatever. He's, he's, he says it's, you know, it's, it's quite a relaxed time. But I then spent the, the night with uh, Vastia in his cabin and we just chatted you know, deep into the night. He was just this lovely old man. He was, I think, about, I think he, was in, he was either in his early 50s or early 60s. He definitely looked the latter. Um, he, you know, in the cabin, it was baking hot. You know, he would fire up that, um, that stove. Uh, so he would, yeah, he would sort of strip down to just leggings and, you know, bare top. And he had the most incredible sort of farmer's tan you've ever seen. Totally just walnut brown hands, walnut brown face, and just very sort of pallid, soft, hairless skin, pale skin all over his, uh, his torso. Um, but he had been a herder since he was a boy. His dad was a herder. His dad was a herder, so on and so forth. It goes on and on and on. To, I mean, he doesn't know how far before relatively modern times. The uh, I should say he's he's not a Sacha. He's a, the Sacha aren't reindeer herding people. He's an Evenk or Evenki or Evenki. It gets a bit tangled up there. And also ethnicity is a complicated thing up there because the ethnicity that he at least said he was part of, Evenki, are quite... I mean, they're sort of dying out or their numbers aren't thriving due to birth rates, neglect, who knows? It's... That's something complicated. Um, subsequently, there are sort of subsidies available for people who are registered at birth as Evenki. So everyone who's got any claimable or even not Evenki heritage is registered Evenki. So it all gets a bit tangled. Um, but, you know, we had a good time hanging out. He was, he was sort of blind as a bat. He had rigged up. He had a, a smartphone. And when he went back to the village, he would get someone to load lots of like TV shows onto it. 
And so, you know, we spoke for hours and then before he went to sleep, he got out this sort of, I think it was probably had once been a coat hanger, a wire coat hanger, that he had bent into this special shape so he could sort of lie flat on his bed and sort of pin it around his neck and then it like held about four inches above his face. It just held his phone in front of his face so he could watch, you know, TV shows. Uh, and he'd pop in his earphones and sort of, yeah, drifted off with this phone just hanging, you know. I, I, I often in the morning drop my phone on my face if I try and do anything, you know, holding it above me. Um, but, you know, I, I asked him about, we, we, did, we didn't talk about the special operation as far as I remember. Or if we did, there was nothing, you know, new. He, he probably did ask me about it, to be honest. But um, I asked him about, you know, climate change. He's a reindeer herder. Finally, I'd met someone out herding, albeit in quite a passive sense during the winter. And, you know, I... There's a lot of talk within academia, I suppose, about uh, snow on ice um, or, yes, rain on ice uh, incidents um, where there'll be snowfall or rain in autumn which will sit on the ground and then the weather gets cold very quickly, that freezes and you get a crust of ice over the ground, the snow falls on top of that and then the reindeer can't, you know, there's that crust of ice. They can't break through that, so they starve. This is a huge problem in Mongolia occasionally. They have a winter where, you know, a third or even a half of their livestock just dies. Um, and I asked him about this, and he said it's not a huge problem, with us at least, because the herds are very small. There's less competition for the grazing. If there are some places that are icy, we can move to another spot. There's not so many reindeer competing for the same amount of forage. Um... He said the problem is that no one wants to be a herder anymore. And this is understandable. You know, in the Dom Kultura in Naiba, I went, they, they had Wi-Fi there, which was surprising, slow, but, you know, it worked. And in the evenings, you know, while I was staying in the hospital, each evening I'd walk, you know, through the snows, this little village hall. And the kids, you know, the teenagers from the school, which I'd been, to, I'd been taken to visit and shown around, they would be there sort of on the stage in the village or practicing their essentially sort of TikTok dance routines to Western songs that I hadn't heard and hated. Um, but but they're just like kids anywhere else. And of course, they all want to go to Yakutsk. Um, the, the school is intact, so they are there for the time being. And I guess that's what gave the village the appearance and maybe the reality of being a sort of functioning uh, settlement. But still, all the kids want to go away. And you know, he said that his children have no interest. None of the children have any interest. And I, and I asked him, you know, in 50 years, what will happen? And he said, well, I don't really want to think about it, but I don't think there'll be many. You know, or, or in the reindeer, you know, they can just go feral. They're fine. But they may not be herded. Um, so, you know, from his perspective, the biggest challenge is cultural shift or urbanization or modernization rather than climate change, which I hadn't expected. And your view on that now? I'm always very careful with views on that because I, every now and again you'll hear someone in Tanzania saying, oh, God, you know, in the villages it's such a shame because everyone's got mobile phones and no one no, no longer lives in huts made of shit and mud. And, you know, God, like it used to be so picturesque, the poverty here. And I, I think that's, quite detestable and you know we don't want to still be you know worshipping stones in a circle with the sun with druids we want to have our phones and our internet and you and I are sat in a you know a 
baffled booth and it's lovely and there's a coffee machine just outside. We love all these things. And of course we do because they're great and why shouldn't anyone else love them? So although things will disappear and slip away culturally and although arguably the world is slowly, to some extent at least, homogenizing, it's not the end of the world. You know, cultures have forever been shifting and any culture that we think oh that's about to disappear i do think it's important to try and record and get as much down so things aren't forgotten but if people no longer want to live with certain cultural traits and it's very easy to point out like fgm and sooty and all these various things the slavery that are wrong and were cultural mores at the time if people want to move on from that then absolutely you know modernity brings with it often not always but hopefully often equality and progress and comfort and health and longevity and you know people if they want and can get access to all those things should be helped and encouraged to do so and also openness of media and information and everything like that is exactly what russia needs and so these kids you know wanting to record their videos and put them on tiktok although they, well, actually tiktok they probably do have access because it's china owned but um you know that that connect with the rest of the world globalization hopefully can and the experiment with it feels a little bit on the rocks right now but hopefully can bring about you know liberalism and progress um it doesn't feel like it's been played out so much right now but you know that's the that's the pipe dream and i'm not this is not a loaded question did any of that exchange and interaction with the herder feel hopeful no. One word. Uh, it, it, you know, it felt... <sighs> well, I mean, it's tricky because of everything I just said, you know, for the people who formerly, you know, yesteryear would have become herders and lived those lives that it's very easy to say are noble and simple and, you know, it's almost, almost like the sort of the noble savage trope. You know, those people won't end up living that life and given the choice between two different lives they've chosen or will choose or want to choose something different and maybe that is hopeful it's just sad seeing you know he doesn't feel part of this new thing even though he watches crap russian tv on his smartphone on the tundra he doesn't feel part of this new thing and of course we're all drawn to or attract you know or, or perhaps even feel tied to or somehow invested in what we have or what once was and you know that's often <laughs> that's often i guess how politics can stagnate or even anything can stagnate because we you know we don't allow you know, change is positive change is good not always but you know creative destruction whatever you know like changing things is the only way that things can get better they can also get worse there is that risk i'm now talking in circles no you Nomadic communities having access to penicillin and, yeah, exactly. you know, exactly. argue against that. Yeah. So I, I, I felt sad for him, I guess. He will probably soon retire to the village and I don't know what that holds for him. Maybe that holds, you know, a comfy, comfortable, happy retirement with a wife that he may have grown to some extent estranged from over the years. Maybe that won't be happy. Maybe he'll feel restless or trapped or crowded in the village, which is a tiny little village to me, but is like a metropolis to him. Um, maybe he'll, you know, eventually end up moving to Yakutsk and seeing his grandchildren, you know, go to work on buses and use 
you know, computers to code or something. Who like, who knows? So I suppose uh, I could make myself see it as both hopeful and as sad and sort of, you know, a, an element of loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So at what point, you know, you've just left the Yana, you've had the interaction and the, the meeting with the reindeer herder. Where are we in the, the weeks, the days, the months? Um, the... Meeting Vasya, I then went back to Naiba, to the village, spent one more night in the hospital, and the next day walked out of town, village, uh, back onto the sea, and I think it was another six days, perhaps, from there to Tixi, um, which by this point the weather was as... I was very lucky, because actually the, the sort of famed howling winds of the coast barely featured there were a couple of quite windy nights but that was it really so that I, I, I it was unseasonably calm maybe for climate reasons who knows um and uh that was quite a peaceful time i knew the end was coming i also knew that i was expect i've been told in naiba that i was expected by the authorities in tixi but again i to, to my mind that meant that i will be spoken to and maybe told to leave russia at worst. Um, but, you know, it was... it was The, the nights were less cold. Um, the landscape was quite sort of beautiful, quite forbidding. The um, So I was on the sea, never more than, I guess, a couple of miles, really, from the coast. There's one bay that I crossed where I was maybe 10 miles from the coast, but mostly I was following the coast. And there are just these big, time-blackened, you know, aged cliffs rearing up out of the white that are just that kind of barricade, you know, barring the continent of Eurasia from the Arctic Sea, which were quite sort of forbidding and beautiful and just barren and bleak, I guess. It was, it was, it's a really beautiful place, but it's it's sort of the end of the world. You know, we, you never, if you talk about the continent of Asia, I think your mind goes to China and India and Southeast Asia and, you know, maybe Mongolia. It doesn't really go to, because Russia's this complicated country that is a continent what spans a continent spans two continents maybe um the top of it it it's sort of out of our you know mental periphery you know it's gone it's so far away and being up there was surreal and sublime like daily I, i loved it it was really really nice i'd never felt so kind of just out in the middle of nowhere even though like every couple of days a vehicle might go past on on the ice yeah, and so we're totally clear. You know, you left that river and you arrived at the coast, and that there are no trucks from this point. That that when I left the Yana River up into the hills and over onto the tundra, the trucks were heading off, continuing along the Yana to Nizhnyansk, the end of the river, to collect their coal. 
Uh, so from that point onwards, I, I mean, at one point, I think I went six or seven days um, without seeing a vehicle. Um, between Khair and Naiba, I don't think I saw a vehicle. And how was that? What was going through your head then? Because that must have been different. Yeah, it was lovely. Like, I, I like, you know, time and space. And also because the encounters and experiences I was having with people were complicated, not stressful, but complicated, and occasionally a little sad, obviously, given what people would tell me about what they thought. Um, time by myself, particularly was towards the end of the journey, just felt like a little bit of a treat, a little bit of me time. Um, and it's... It's not integral to, but I always feel for me it's quite an important part of journeys is, particularly if you are traveling by yourself, is time properly by yourself. And I suppose I got this up there on the, on the Arctic ice. In the last six days, I haven't seen a soul. Um, so it's been very much just me. Um, I reached the the end, the mouth of the Omoloi River, and uh, walked out onto the Laptev Sea, the Arctic Ocean, uh, which is very, very frozen. Um, and I'm now currently camped on the Laptev. Currently, I think I'm uh, perhaps close to 10 miles from land in any direction. Yeah, and it's hard not to be inspired and hopeful under Aurora Borealis, surely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was there were not many nights where I, like, so I saw it a few nights. There were more nights where I glimpsed it through a crack in my tent. I thought, yeah, it's minus 43. <laughs> I think I'll give it a skip tonight. <laughs> you know, and, and also when I saw it, I, the first few times at least, felt compelled to try and photograph it. And fiddling around with a camera at the temperatures is yet harder and there were a couple of nights up on the sea ice where I just stood and watched it and didn't bother, and that was really nice. It is a chilly old night, but seeing as I had found a little cabin to sleep in for the night, I set my alarm for one o'clock, and I have come outside away from the warmth of the fire that I just stoked up I'm wrapped up I'm wrapped up warm my fingers are still real cold but I'm standing looking at the most jaw-dropping aurora borealis display that I've ever seen in my life um, I've only seen a handful but this one just blows the rest away um, absolutely unbelievable just incredible just these big folding flashing curtains of green light they just keep moving and sort of skittering Oh, it's just amazing. I, can't, I really can't, I can't describe them. <laughs> I feel a little bit emotional. Um, oh, God, and they just stretch right the way overhead across the sky. Just 
plumes of them. They keep changing and new ones pop up. And I stare at it because it's a big streak heading sort of from one end of the sky all the way overhead to sort of seemingly the opposite end. I suppose I'm far enough north that you know, they are not all to the north. They're, they're just right the way across the sky. And I stare at one end of it sort of in wonder as it moves. And I turn and look the other way and the, the whole sky behind me has changed and lit up as well. It's just incredible. Oh. God, it's so bright. It's like, you know when a sunbeam shoots through sort of low, loose cloud? It's like that in an incredibly distorted world where light doesn't travel in straight lines. And the starscape besides as well. I hadn't really even thought of looking for that until now, but the stars are just sublime. <sighs> wow. I'm going to stop recording because I'm making a fool of myself. There are no words. There are no words. That's an interesting point. We probably don't have time for it in detail, but that strength of character and mind to just say, now nah, this one's for me. I don't know if it's strength necessarily. It's... I suppose sometimes, particularly in cold weather, it's such a hassle photographing things. Particularly with the camera, with an iPhone, it's very easy. You can do that and you can get yourself some less good photos, you know. Um, that's, that's, that's not hard. But the, the, the faff of fiddling around with timers and tripods and whatever else and ISO and then struggling to see if the picture you've got on the tiny little sort of, you know, two by one and a half inch monitor is actually any good... It's not really worth the effort every time, and sometimes it's nicer just to enjoy it. It's like um, if you go to a, I don't know, a concert or a gig or something, and people are watching it through their phone. I mean, it's a it's a it's a cliche, but it's yeah, it's going to be best enjoyed just looking at it with your eyes. Yeah, funny that. <laughs> Did this feel like work? No, I've done my. I've done years trying to trying to ensure that much of my quote unquote work doesn't feel like work, um, which you know I probably sacrificed some element of progress or ambition to get there. But I suppose I feel I enjoy what I do and feel it's going all right, and wouldn't want to make huge compromises to change that. So going for a hike, you know, especially the hiking bits, that doesn't feel like work. That's, you know, it's going on a hike. It's fun. But it is. Well, yes and no. I suppose it provides the material with which I can later work. So perhaps getting in my tent each night and in the cold with a pen that keeps freezing up, I should have taken a pencil, um, you know, writing down what had happened that day, recording everything, photographing when, as and when I remembered to or could be bothered to, um, recording onto a dictaphone for some dictatorial podcast editor. <laughs> podcast host, I should say. Um, you know, that feels a little more like work. But even then, you know, like I'm very lucky to do what I do and not for one second do I 
you know, there's no sob story here. Even with going to prison later, I was incredibly lucky not to end up with worse. I'm very lucky to do the things I do and to make a somewhat precarious living out of it. So I feel nothing but, um, you know, luck. And do you think these experiences offer you an opportunity for, I don't know, internal conversations or I don't want to say a form of therapy, but do they take you to places in your own head and mentally than you otherwise wouldn't visit, you think? Definitely, yeah. But I think that comes through any form of hardship, whether that be bearing a child or, you know, like I mean, anything that pushes you in a physical or a mental sense teaches you and that doesn't always teach you good things and it doesn't always make you happy. It's not always a positive experience, but experience, you know, by default, you learn from experience. Whether or not you learn the lessons from experience, you still had that experience and you probably will learn something. And seeing as it was such a shitty day, I um, <clears throat> I stuck on uh, some music on my phone, um, which I don't often do. When I do listen to stuff, I tend to listen to um, podcasts and a couple of audiobooks I've got. Um, and yeah, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't having. I wasn't in the best frame of mind, I guess. It was just cold and bleak and a bit miserable. My nose kept getting really cold. I couldn't seem to stop the tip of my nose from stinging. Um, <clears throat> I couldn't get or keep my fingers warm. I think all my gloves are probably quite sort of saturated with water, so ice when it's cold. <clears throat> and then, by chance, this song came on, um, and it was the last single released by David Bowie. And it came out, I think, two days before or after Bowie died. I forget which. But um, the day that it came out was also the day that my dad died. Um, and that song, I've, I really like it, but it's always had quite um, triggering uh quite a triggering effect on me um and the the circumstances of my dad's death were quite um quite harrowing for me personally i suppose um i'm sure for many people not least my mum obviously um but i found him in a field having had a heart attack and spent uh 20 25 minutes um in vain, trying to uh, resuscitate him, you know, doing CPR just endlessly. Kind of, I think, knowing that it was too late, but what else can you do? You just keep going until the kind of underfunded rural ambulance service manages to get out to a, a village buried somewhere in the depths of South Wiltshire. Um, and the, the song just always immediately takes me back there it's really annoying because I'd, I'd really like to be able to like the song um when it came on i knew that it was going to send me into a bit of a spiral um but i couldn't really skip it um because my um i couldn't yank my earphones out because my earphones were um under a buff and a 
uh, hood and a face mask that velcros around the back of my head and a hat and the, the hood of my down jacket as well. Uh, so a lot of layers. Uh, and I was wearing three pairs of gloves, a three-layer system of gloves. And the top layer was kind of windproof uh, mitts. There was no chance I was going to be able to, unless I just exposed my fingers, uh, to get it out of my pocket and skip the song. So I, I just sort of thought, right, well, you know, it, it's only three, four minutes. I think in the end, I think it's like a five-minute song. Um, but I thought, you know, it, like it'll pass and fine. But uh, it just sent me into this really... Um, this is quite unusual for me. I'm, I'm generally quite a um, sort of even keel type person. I, my peaks are not necessarily all that high. My troughs are, are rare and, and not low, generally. Um, I think I just kind of you know, bumble along at quite a nice level, usually, with regard to sort of you know, frame of mind or whatever. But I spent the rest of that day, probably four hours or so of walking until I pitched my tent, just kind of in this horrible place where I was reliving, really visually, viscerally, reliving that whole experience, you know, just one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one. And... Um, and then sort of blaming myself for, you know, if I had got up, uh, I'd been, like, he'd been missing for an hour, perhaps, and if I'd just got up earlier, it was, it was the first thing in the morning, he'd gone for a walk. If I'd got up earlier or gone to try and find him in a different direction or had just found him quicker, then maybe I would have been able to help and maybe, you know, I'd still, we'd, we'd still have him. Um, but I didn't and I know I know rationally I know on a rational level that that's not that, that you know that I'm not to blame that I didn't do anything wrong um, and it maybe took me a bit of time to to be sure of that rationally but on whatever it was a few days ago I guess I slipped into an irrational mindset where I had to wrestle that demon for a while therapy I, I, I don't see it as therapy but then I'm quite a sort of buttoned up British bloke and that time by yourself is sort of enforced inflection and, or reflection and that's that's always a good thing is it yeah regardless of how it feels at the time asking and learning more about yourself is always going to be a good thing unless you turn out to be a total prick <laughs> and there's always the risk of that i was just about to say i don't really like spending time on my own but now i don't want to explore why <laughs> so that you know we've obviously just spent a little time talking about this period of isolation introspection etc cetera, etc cetera. there must have come a point i assume where you realized you were getting to your final destination and that there were you know officials who definitely wanted to have a little talk mm -hmm. how did that change your mentality and what did you do to prepare um well my hope given that i still had about a month on my visa left at this point I've been hiking for about seven weeks, perhaps. My hope 
was that I would be able to get from Tixie back to Yakutsk and then with the remaining, you know, take two or three more weeks, go and visit some other, you know, some tiger, some forest reindeer herders down in the south and get a view of the different, you know, it's, it's a slightly more intimate relationship with the reindeer down there than it is up on the tundra where they tend to be in sort of larger herds and slightly more take care of themselves. Um, and so I suppose my plan upon arrival in Tixie was to keep a relatively low profile, get my flight changed to the next available flight and leave. Um, so I tried to do that. I did change my flight to the next available flight, but it wasn't soon enough. To, had, had it been a day sooner, then I would have been out of there and down to Yakutsk, where I probably could have more or less just disappeared. You know, um, I wasn't stay, you know, I didn't stay in a hotel in Yakutsk. I stayed in an Airbnb, and although Airbnb had stopped functioning in Russia, I had the number of the person who, who you know, owned the place, so I could have just called them and arranged somewhere to stay. No one would know where I was. And I was no longer in a, I would no longer have been in a remote place, so probably wouldn't have encountered any problems. Maybe. Who knows? Um, so that was the plan. I don't know if I prepared for that in any particular sense. I just got into town and started going about that and didn't manage to, to sort of get away with it. But then I think you get the idea. I'm asking all of this with kindness, but do you not think that's denial of the inevitable, given that they'd already been tracking you? it's always I'm always wary of trying to or allowing myself to view things with hindsight as though I could have had that hindsight you can't have prospective hindsight you know prophecy is is not part of the game at the time I felt there's a chance I'll be kicked out but if I don't get kicked out I'll get down to Yakutsk and I'll be fine it, it really hadn't crossed my mind that I would have a stint on the inside um, so maybe I was naive to that. Maybe I, you know, I, I hadn't been, I hadn't really had, I had very minimal, only a couple of occasions in two different villages, access to the internet. So I was aware via a conversation with my girlfriend what had happened in Busher, for example. And I knew that there were atrocities, the war was still going on. I knew that things weren't going great for Russia. I knew that cities in Ukraine were being pulverized. Um, what I didn't know was, or didn't have a sense of, beyond my immediate personal experience, was that Russia had continued to tighten and tighten and tighten the grip on civil liberties and that the, I, I, I suppose I could have assumed and guessed this and perhaps did, that the relationship between Russia and, for example, Britain was rapidly deteriorating and that diplomats were being expelled and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I still didn't, and maybe this is just my sort of, you know, optimism or naivety or sort of blind faith, I don't know, that I still didn't think that I would get, that, that, that what would happen would happen. No, because, you know, you told that story very well in the first episode of what happened next, and obviously there aren't any recordings from that period because <laughs> of the obvious. Yeah. But... I don't know if you mentioned, and maybe I just missed it or have forgotten, actually how long they held you. Uh, four weeks. Because that's not three days. No. Um, four weeks is it's, it's long enough to feel like a long time, but it's also not a very long time. You know, Zagari Ratcliffe, six years or so. Four weeks, it did feel like a long time, but it felt longer than it was or could have done because I didn't know how long I'd be there. 
if they had told me, we're going to hold you for four weeks and then we're going to deport you, then I can just go about counting off the days. But counting, counting down the days is one thing. Counting up the days, not knowing what the number is going to be, is another thing. And, you know, the, the, I didn't know until after I got out, but there's that American basketball player and she has been held and there's talk that she might be released soon. I don't know exactly what the situation is. Brittany Griner, Griner, who she's been held since I think the 17th of February. So she's up to something like 130 days. For carrying CBD, I think, isn't it? Or allegedly. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Perhaps is, not. Yeah. And I mean, there's there's no psychoactive element to that anyway, I believe. I mean, it's totally... I'm not an expert. It's marijuana street, street is a class B drug in the UK and you can buy CBD over the counter. Yeah. Um... So, yeah, it, it felt like a long time. It felt like longer than it otherwise would have done. But I'm, you know, I, I don't want to play up or exaggerate or embellish how long it was. It was four weeks. And, you know, I'm 34 times 52. I've lived for a lot of weeks. Four is not very many of them. So it's sort of unimportant in the grand scheme of things. But, of course, it will lodge in my memory and will um, inform, I suppose, how I think about things and time and freedom moving forward. But, you know, in, 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 the, in the bigger picture, it wasn't very long. And I was very lucky that it wasn't longer. I'm very conscious of not doing too many disclaimers, but I have, definitely have to with this question. I realise it's an unreasonable question in a way, but are you glad it happened? That's a good question. Um, I've never been a good one for regret, and that has benefits and disadvantages. I have done plenty of stupid things in my life and had a few near misses and... I'm happy with my life now and whatever I've done up to this point has got me to this point. So it's a bit trite, but I try not to regret anything. Also, you know, it's, it sounds horribly opportunistic to say, but, you know, I am a travel writer and I went to Russia to have an experience, hopefully a positive experience, and learn about people and write about it. And I've now got a rather dramatic ending to that story. And to be glad of that is, I mean, that's that a bit more of a stretch, but to regret it is a different thing. And I, and I don't think I do regret it. I don't think I, I still personally don't think I did anything particularly stupid, but I already know legions of people on the internet who disagree with that. And, you know, that's their prerogative. Um, I, I suppose for me, it's just important to maintain within myself and within how I relate the story of this journey that the final four weeks, that time in prison, is it's not just a coda, but it, it, it is the final third and there are two other thirds and there was lots of positives and lots that I enjoyed about those two thirds. Yeah. And I think one person's bravery... Uh, sorry, one person's stupidity is another person's bravery. And... Maybe one person's, you know, profound passion is another person's boredom. I mean, it, you know, I don't know you very well, but it seems to me that it wasn't just a journey of self. No, I hope not. But 
in in the dot, part dot, that, dot. <laughs> but in the bit that was journey of self in a way you got on a plane and you said that that was when it hit you and you cried that was the first kind of when i took off leaving russia yeah yeah what happened what was in your brain why well, nearly about a week earlier i had um i'd been given my sort of short phone allowance that day and had a message from my mum saying your granny is about to die um send me a voice note and i'll play it to her um and i very nearly broke down then on the phone to to my partner um but you know a couple of sobs and i think i think for 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 you know for weeks by that point i had done everything i could not to let the masters get you down you know i had so I, I was determined not to fully break down and the closest i came was each time after getting off the phone with my girlfriend and then realizing oh it's 48 hours or on a friday 72 hours until i have any contact with anyone again anyone i know anyone who loves me anyone who cares about me in the meantime it's just guards shouting at me um and handing me gruel <laughs> through the hatch in the door um and so i think that last bit as well as the final scare in the airport where they nearly it felt like weren't going to let me go just everything built up and flowed out to me at that point but i think it would be really weird if it hadn't you know like um i never want to be someone who doesn't feel or display you know emotion good or bad and i reckon it was relatively natural that sort of outpouring oh god yeah, yeah. and i mean my my beloved grandmother rosie sue was 98 and lived a hell of a life um and heard whether or not she was able to mentally register it heard that message and that was nice yeah and she did sorry to but she did die while you were there she yeah she died the day after well i think a few hours after i sent that message um but you know she was a she was a legend um and she uh she was always you know every time i was about to go away on a journey or came back from a journey her and i would get out her massive times atlas of the world and she would draw over it in biro and you know she her and i had a very um very special relationship and that's something that you know very quickly it's easy just to be glad about yeah definitely and so coming home you know it's something that obviously people do talk about it but it's not talked about as often as it could be or should be in my opinion how was that and what happened around reintegration feeling emotion etc well it's been i think five weeks now or was it six weeks it was the first day so it's either five or six weeks i'm not sure what day it is of the month right now but um i mean it was it was great you know my uncle and my girlfriend came to meet me at the airport and you know i was home and we went i got in early morning we went and cooked a big breakfast and then for the you know month or so since then it's been absolutely manic there's been granny's funeral there's been four weddings there's been a lot of work and i don't know if i particularly had time to just sit by myself and wrangle with everything that's happened but i think doing things like this is very useful for that you know this is a excellent form of three free therapy <laughs> um and i i guess that'll just continue the more i think and talk and write or whatever about what's happened the more i'll probably to some extent start to like tamp it down <laughs> but also to draw things from it and come to terms with it and whatever else Thanks for listening to Expeditia, a four-part specialist series. 
For more information on the podcast, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. This podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and is produced and edited by Orla O'Murray. If you want to get in touch, you can do so at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk or you can get in touch on Instagram where you'll find us at theadventurepodcast. And if you want to leave us a review, please do leave an honest review on iTunes. They make the world of difference when we're trying to access new audiences.